Today's guest oversaw the successful merger of two smaller nonprofits to form what has become the largest agency in New Hampshire serving survivors of sexual assault and domestic abuse. Today, we talked to the executive director of Haven about how they have grown the agency to better serve survivors and what has led to Haven to be named Business New Hampshire Magazine's Nonprofit of the Year. I'm Matt Mowry, Executive Editor of Business NH Magazine. And I'm Nathan Carroll, Chief Growth Officer of Granite Media Group and founder of Cardinal Consulting. And welcome to BizCast NH. Matt, this is exciting. Um, it's exciting that we get to to talk with Kathy Beebe today yes. from Haven. Um, they do incredible work, and that's uh, I I didn't honestly know about the organization prior to their winning um, this this award, and so I am so glad that we get to to spread some more awareness for them through this platform. Um, they're doing, like you said, such such amazing work, um, and. Uh, yeah, I don't even know where to start. I'm just so excited uh, that we get to have this this conversation and, and put them on a, a platform, as it were. Well, and the, the um, work that they're doing is so important, um, and it's heartbreaking that mm. it's work that has to be done. Yeah. And, you know, I I had the, the pleasure and of interviewing Kathy for the article, and it, you know... You, as a man, you think about, as a father, I should say, I think about, I'm raising two sons. Mm. And I have all these important women in my life, my niece, who's about to go off to college, and it's an exciting time in her life. And I, but I know, I know that there's this important conversation my, my sister's going to have with her about being aware and being careful. Mm. And it's a conversation we shouldn't have to have. I know it. And Oof. as the father of two sons, I go, we have to do better with our sons. Mm-hmm. You know, it can't be about warning our daughters. It has to be about doing a better job of raising our sons to be aware of what healthy relationships look like, about what consent means. What respect and, is. And what respect is. And, and we don't do enough of that. No. And, you know, and it's something I've been very conscious of since becoming a dad and in the conversations we have with our sons. And, you know, while having those discussions, it can never be too late. It definitely can't be too early. Right. And, right. you know, so even things like we play around, right? Yeah. And, and you're tickling one another. But, you know, we also made sure that they knew of the agency of if you are done with that mm-hmm. to say so yes and i will stop yeah and the same thing if da- you're tickling dad and i go okay i've had enough and they're you know but they're rambunctious and they're like oh but it's fun and like no yeah i'm done it's my body right and my body's done yeah and y- you have to stop now right and so that you know was an an important discussion to start having. And then, you know, it, it's not, it's one that doesn't end. You know, there's so much in our media today that sends such toxic messages. Yes. Yes. You know, you have to be on top of it. You need to, to have those, use them as ongoing discussions. And then, you know, I have a teenager now mm. and, 
he had his first, you know, relationship. Sure. Um, you know, and, and so you have all the, you know, mechanics discussions and you have all the, the discussions around emotions, but you need to have the, you know, it's important that you're having those discussions about, you know, recognizing that the other person in that relationship is a human being who isn't there to serve your needs. Mm -hmm. That being in a relationship is about being equal, is about being respectful, about, um, you know, respecting boundaries. Um, And it's a discussion we don't have enough in our society. And I know you've got two young ones, a daughter and a son. Yeah. These are discussions you're facing. Well, and you said, I mean, you were even talking about, you know, uh, the tickling, right? And saying no, or, and, and so we practice in our house all the time. It's like, wait a minute, you know, Noah said no, or Sophie said no. Um, that they don't want to hug, that they this, that they that. It's listening. It's being mm-hmm. respectful. You know, it's it, and it starts, and it's appropriate to start having age-appropriate conversations or reminders at the age of, my kids are, you know, three and six, almost four and seven. Um, and it's just reinforcing being respectful, being good humans, um, being a good listener, and, you know, all of those things that you said. And it, it cannot start too early. Uh, to to raise obviously raise good good human beings, um, but raise them in a way that uh, we hope that when they sort of are making decisions for themselves, and then when they have their own families, um, that they also are doing for their kids what we're trying to do for them. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that's big. It's this is this is um, going to be a really valuable and insightful uh interesting conversation but it's big and it's heavy and this Um, is one of the conversations that haven is having with kids yeah in schools to find out that they are working with kids and we're going to get into this in just a moment but i was just I, i was overjoyed to know that you know it is across the spectrum it is not just uh, men or women or, you know, straight people or otherwise it is with children. And it's like, this is exactly how it obviously needs to be done and is being done. Um, but they've got, and they're having so much success, but they've got so many challenges ahead as well, just as, because we do as a society. So, um, so let's dive into let's this discussion. Dive in. Yeah. Our guest this week, as you know, is Kathy Beebe, executive director of Haven, the largest domestic and sexual violence prevention and support agency in New Hampshire. As executive director, Kathy leads a highly skilled team to oversee all fiscal, operational, and programming aspects of the agency and works alongside with board of directors in providing agency leadership and strategic planning to create organizational sustainability to further the mission of Haven. Kathy has a master's in nonprofit management and leadership from New England College and focused her thesis on the building of strategic alliances between nonprofits. Most recently, Kathy received the coveted Lori Reared Achievement in Leadership Award. Kathy currently serves as the board chair for the New Hampshire Center for Nonprofits and has previous board experience with the New Hampshire Coalition Against Domestic and Sexual Violence, Stratford County Family Justice Center, and Leadership Seacoast and was appointed by former Governor Lynch to the New Hampshire Judicial Selection Commission, where she served for three terms. Kathy was born and raised in Portsmouth and currently resides there with her daughter, Brenna. Kathy, welcome. 
Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Well, it's it's really, really our pleasure. Of course, congratulations to Haven, to you for all your hard work, for, to your team for all of their hard work. Um, and so Haven is the result of a merging of two community action organizations. So maybe just set the stage for us about what Haven is now. What's the history of those organizations that came together? Um, and where are, you, uh, where are you headed, as it were, as one organization? Sure. So in New Hampshire, there's currently 12 agencies that provide services to victims of domestic and sexual violence, mm. and they all kind of sprouted up grassroots. So for the longest time in the Seacoast area, you had a domestic violence agency that got started, and then one year later, a sexual assault agency that got started, oh, where basically the people that founded them just didn't know about the other organization. Wow. And so they sprouted up to serve a need that mm-hmm. they saw, mm-hmm. and for many, many years, um, I was with one of the organizations, and we worked really closely together, and we did a lot of work together. But there was still the challenges of, you know, if someone found the sexual assault agency, we could provide support and assistance. But if they also needed a shelter, that wasn't something that we had. So there was still a lot of, you know, shuffling back and forth and trying to provide the comprehensive services. So we tried for a long time to bring the organizations together, but. Mm. As we'll probably talk about, there's some challenges when you mm-hmm. try to merge two organizations. Yeah. Um, but we finally were able to do that in 2015. And our goal when we merged was to do more. Mm-hmm. You know, both agencies were doing really important work, but we weren't. We knew we weren't meeting the need. The area that we cover is so large. It's about 48 cities and towns mm-hmm. in southeastern New Hampshire. So wow. trying to have the resources needed to increase our capacity to do more, um, we knew we needed to figure out a way to provide better services. Wow. So we finally, after, mm. <laughs> after a long period of time, um, I was actually the director of the Sexual Assault Agency. And then um, when there was a change in leadership of A Safe Place, which was the Domestic Violence Agency, mm-hmm. their board hired me for a year. So we worked with a consultant and um, finally went through the thorough process of merging into what became Haven in 2015. Wow. And what is now the mission of Haven? So our mission is to be there to support anyone who's been impacted by domestic or sexual violence or human trafficking or stalking. And we do that in a multitude of ways through 24-hour support services, our emergency shelter for people who are fleeing abuse. We provide accompaniments at courts, hospitals. We go to child advocacy center accompaniments where a child has disclosed abuse and we provide support to those family members. Um, We also have our fairly new in the last several years housing program. There's a lot of people who um, are homeless as a result of leaving abusive relationships, and they're not in danger, but they still need access to homes. And so helping to find them access housing while we provide support services until they can get on their feet and be safe and self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, so we try to do whatever we can to be there for the supportive piece. But our mission is equally focused on stopping this from happening and preventing it. And so you mentioned in the intro kind of the important work that we're doing in schools and working with kindergarten through 12th grade. Wow schools where we provide classroom-based, age-appropriate, as you were talking about, Mm -hmm. presentations that help kids to learn about personal body safety rules. You know, my body belongs to me. Um, 
touches in the private area to keep me clean and healthy. Um, and then they build upon that to talk about consent and empathy and um, healthy relationships and what that looks like. And the premise is all about how to get support if you need it, um, as well as how to help a friend, you know, particularly for the older ages where kids don't come to the trusted grown-up. They talk to their peers, mm. and their peers don't know what to do with that. So our mission is really those twofold pieces of we want to be able to help anyone who's experienced it, but we also want to do what we can to try to protect children and adults in the community. Wow. Now, I think it's important that we kind of set the table for listeners, too, and giving kind of the scope of the violence that we're dealing with in our in the areas that you're serving, which is only, you know, to keep in mind for our listeners, just a portion of New Hampshire, mm-hmm. I mean, right. a large portion, but a portion of it, and that a lot of even the statistics that we have don't necessarily... Get, uh, paint a complete picture because, unfortunately, domestic violence and sexual assault often fly under the radar for a variety of reasons. But can you talk about the number of um, survivors that you serve and what that, what the, the scope that you know you still have to s- uncover and serve might be? Yeah, so even as we've been merged now for almost eight years, um, you know, pre-pandemic, we were constantly seeing our numbers increase. And that was all about awareness and Mm -hmm. all about more people finding out about help and support. Um, You know, pre-pandemic, we were seeing about 4,000 people in our client services um, programs. And knowing that that's only a tip of the iceberg, we know how many people are truly impacted because our work isn't always just with the person who's directly experienced the abuse. Sometimes in the case of child sexual abuse or sexual assault, we're working with the family members who are also impacted by what's happened to either their child or significant other or friend. Um, So we want to be there for anyone that's experienced it. So we know that those numbers can go higher um, and are higher. And that's also our goal in continuing to increase capacity so that we can see even more people and expand on our programs and services. You know, we used to have people that wanted to volunteer. We're fortunate we have a lot of volunteers. And sometimes they would come in and they would say, you know, I don't know anybody who's experienced domestic or sexual violence, but I care about this and I want to do my part. And then they would start volunteering and they would start telling family, friends, coworkers what they were doing. And you can only imagine what then happened. Mm -hmm. They were suddenly right back in saying, oh my goodness, I had no idea how many people I know that this has happened to. And so it is, as you said earlier, a really hard and difficult topic to for people to talk about. Mm. And for a long time, people didn't know that there was help and support. Um, and so as we continue to do more, we know those numbers are going to increase, and hopefully we can be there to assist more people. Um, in our prevention education programs, we we're seeing pre-pandemic again, about 15,000 kids in the area, which is phenomenal because, you know, as you mentioned, I grew up in the Seacoast area and we certainly weren't having these conversations or programs when I was in school. And so it's really exciting that we're starting, particularly with the young age, the kids, um, and having these conversations. And um, But we also know that there's 40,000 school-age kids in just our geographic area alone. So we have a lot of work to do to increase our capacity to 
make sure we see every kid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you just, this is sort of a logistical thing, but help m- me and our listeners understand. You said there's 12 organizations uh, focused on this in uh, New Hampshire. They've most mostly come up sort of grassroots. Um, are they sort of evenly spread around the, the geography or the counties or uh, are there, you know, is there essentially an organization in, in someone's neighborhood, as it were, for uh, throughout the state? Yes. So we are spread throughout the the state. Um, again, some of it has no rhyme or reason in, in how we're structured, but sure, um, people sure. can access their local agency. And if people go to the coalition's website, mm-hmm. um, then they can see which communities are covered by which area. But also, there, you know, if somebody were to find an organization outside of their area, mm-hmm. um, you know, if they found Haven, we could definitely direct them to one closer to them if they needed it. Nice. And before we get to the breadth of services that you provide, I mean, it's amazing everything you do. Can we first talk about what are some of the challenges that people have to overcome um, to either seek out or research? What what prevents people from either seeking out or receiving services that they might desperately need? Well, I think the first piece is, again, not knowing Mm -hmm. that there might be help and support available. Um, You know, for a lot of, if you're talking about child sexual abuse or child abuse, for a lot of kids who have experienced it, they don't know that, they might not know that there's help available or that this is something that's happening to something, someone more than them, you know, that they might feel like they're the only one and not really understand what's going on. They feel isolated. Feeling, Mm -hmm. absolutely feeling isolated. You know, I think if you're talking about people leaving abusive relationships, Mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of barriers that exist. Um, You know, it's it's often difficult for people to understand why someone might stay in an abusive Mm -hmm. relationship where there might be violence, um, but to not understand that that's not what's keeping people in that relationship. What's keeping people in that relationship is those barriers of often the financial control that exists. You know, for some folks, they may have not been allowed to work, or if they do work, they might not have any control over the finances. Perhaps that paycheck gets turned over, mm-hmm. or perhaps things are in their name and they suddenly have bad credit as a result of things not being paid. Um, there's the challenges if there's children involved in concern about custody and being able to keep the children um, and so much of the abuse is that kind of ongoing, that isolation piece, keeping people away from access to friends and support. Um, and so it's a long process. There's so many people that try to leave abusive relationships that are suddenly pulled back in, and it's not because they want to stay in a situation where they're being harmed. It's because they're really having that difficulty and challenge of, where do I go? And what do I do? And how do I make sure that I can take care of myself and my family if I haven't had access to the funding or the the money? Yeah. Um, I I was particularly struck um, in kind of learning about the organization that there's a video, a a very well done video on your website um, talking about sort of the two organizations that were and the the, uh, merging and 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 what uh, you're, you know, you're doing now and sort of into the future. But um, what I was struck by in that video is that there was a uh, probably, you know, middle-aged man who spoke very openly about his abuser. 
And I think, you know, that may speak to, you know, thank God for him and being able to, to come forward and, and speak about it now, but that maybe that sort of stigma for men, um, that what, you know, I'm not going to say something cause I'm a man and I don't want to, you know, and, uh, and I think just stigma around, you know, all of, uh, of this topic and, and, um, we're getting, we're getting, uh, slowly but surely better as a society uh talking about things like mental health right on a regular basis and and being true about all that but there there must just be so much uh to so many layers to a male or anybody for that matter but i was particularly struck by this male coming forward and saying this happened to me you know and um was very powerful yeah and you know Matt, I think it's great that you were talking about talking to your sons. Mm. Um, But one of the things that I think is really important with the prevention programs and talking to kids is recognizing that when it comes to kids being abused, it's almost equally girls Mm -hmm. and boys. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there is that additional barrier because there is kind of, there's the stigma anyway, I think, in the concern for people coming forward and not being believed. Um, But for you know, the person you're speaking about in our video as an adult male coming forward to talk about what happened to him yeah. as, a, as a child um, is, a, is a big barrier. You know, these are difficult things for people to talk about. And there's the, always the concern of what's, what's the response going to be? You know, if I tell friends or family what's happened to me, am I going to get a supportive response? And sometimes that's a barrier for people seeking help because if they tell their friends and they don't get a good response Mm -hmm. or they tell their parent and they don't get a good response, that can shut people down a little bit in terms of telling anybody else. Um, So one of our personal body safety rules when we're seeing the kids is um, not only is it never too late to tell, but if you tell someone and don't get the help that you need, keep telling. Um, and because it's really important, not a lot of adults know how to respond to kids and not a lot of friends know how to respond. So it's really important that we keep telling the messages to the children that if something's happening, it's not your fault. And it's important to reach out to a trusted grown up. But if you don't get the help that you need, keep telling. And the pandemic turned so many things upside down and you were talking about prior to the pandemic reports of sexual assault and domestic violence were on the rise as people became more aware of the resources. What happened when the pandemic hit and then how did you as an organization have to pivot to meet the needs of people? Because so many people obviously were focused on just, surviving the pandemic and then forgetting that all these other elements still existed Mm. for people that were suffering um, in their own homes um, beyond that. Can you talk about what the effect of the pandemic was on both survivors and on the organization and how you met those needs? Well, and as you said, it was difficult for all of us, Mm. but when you think about the isolation, particularly in the beginning with during the stay-at-home time, the isolation for either adults or kids that were in abusive homes was devastating because they suddenly, where they before may have had respite, where they could have gone to work or the 
abuser went to work or the kids went to school and were around trusted grownups, they didn't have that mechanism to even reach out and get help. Um, so what we saw initially was kind of that reaching the point of the increased need for emergency shelter and folks needing shelter. One of our challenges has always been that we don't have a big enough shelter. We didn't before, um, and we certainly didn't for a pandemic. Mm. So we were in a situation where we had to put folks into hotels um, as to meet that increased need, and that was just not conducive to providing supportive services. Shelter for domestic violence survivors is more than a roof over your head. Right. Um, and so when you put people into a hotel where they're further isolated, you can't have access to around-the-clock support and assistance. Um, it just was a really challenging time. Um, the other thing that happened was kids that were home and not around trusted grown-ups. So we suddenly saw kind of a decline in hearing from kids. You know, the accompaniments weren't happening, different things. So when schools did open back up and kids were suddenly around the trusted adults, then there was a huge increase in reporting um, because what had been experienced by these children in abusive homes was suddenly coming to light. Um, so there was a lot we needed to do. One of the things that we started out doing was we put um, a chat feature on our website. Mm -hmm. And that was really difficult because there were some folks that would reach out to us that way. And it's very hard to provide support if you're typing into a computer. Mm -hmm. um, and so we would say, can you get to a phone, can you call us? And for, in some cases, they would say, no, the person's right here. And I was going to say, can you talk about why you put the chat feature in, what that did for victims and uh, survivors to be able to reach out to you? Yeah, so, I mean, it was helpful, as I was just saying, for the folks that were truly unable to access services in any other way. Mm -hmm. But also, I think it continues to be helpful for teenagers and youth. Um, it's a, It's right. a... Typical way. Yeah, I was going to say that is the way that they communicate <laughs> right. for the most part. Right, right. So but I, you know, when we were doing our interview too, you were talking about, and it just struck me that you know, a, a survivor could be there at their computer. Their abuser might be in the same room, but they could look like they're working, right? As opposed to doing the reach out that the abuser wants to prevent. Right. And we, we were actually fortunate, too, that one of the things we were trying to do before the pandemic was to switch to what's called mobile advocacy. And that's basically reducing the barriers of transportation and meeting folks where they're at. So our client service advocates would meet with people in either one of our three offices or go to homes for our housing clients or sometimes meet in a park well, the kids were playing, you know, like just figuring out ways to provide services in a different way than requiring that people always come to us. Mm. Um, but as a result of going in that direction, we were fortunate that we had already equipped our client services teams with their own work cell phones, as well as laptops and things that when the pandemic hit, we were able to quickly adapt. And at least with the folks we were already working with, they could text us on those phones. They could access some support and some help in a way that was discreet and not putting themselves in more danger. Yeah. And then what happened, you run a shelter, um, but now we're faced with people can't be together with other people. Um, so how did you handle those needs? Yeah, so 
What's interesting is right before the pandemic, we were embarking on a, we had done a lot of strategic planning to figure out what we needed to do to increase our shelter capacity. And we actually went out to Washington State and we looked at some shelter models and to try to figure out what might make sense for us here in New Hampshire. And they're doing some great things out there, not because they're smarter than us, but because <laughs> Bill Gates gave them some money. Um, <laughs> Bill, if you're listening. Bill Gates money to help. Bill Gates could give New Hampshire some money. Um, but what we landed on was trying to figure out what made sense for us. And also one of the things that's was so striking to us about what they're doing is they had built some truly dignified shelters. They had moved away from that communal living piece. Mm -hmm. And right now, when you think about what Haven has been using for years, has been a home as our shelter. And you can imagine how difficult, we all know how difficult it is to live with someone that you get along well with and um, you share space with. But if you're in a abusive relationship and you're fleeing and perhaps you have children and you come in and you're stuck in a bedroom where you're sharing everything else. You're, you might be sharing a bathroom with another family. Um, you might be in a working, cooking in a kitchen where you don't even have access to your children being able to be in there because the space is so small. Mm-hmm. Um, so really looking at how can you build dignified shelters where people have a place where they can retreat to, but also have access to programs and services with other people that have experienced similar situations. So the shelter that we want to build and what we saw is that dignified space, more like apartments, Mm -hmm. where you're setting people up. It's still a shelter, but it's a place where they are healing and rebuilding their lives from what they've experienced. And ideally, reaching the point where they're kind of in their own apartment, which leads to better um, opportunity when there's time for housing, when they're no longer in need for, for a shelter, but then can get into housing. So we really wanted to create that kind of space for folks um, and make sure that if people did need shelter, they had access to one that was dignified. And then the pandemic hit. And what did that do to all those plans and and how you had to respond. Yeah, so we obviously just had to stop what we wanted to do and just do what we needed to do to get through the pandemic and to make sure that there was no stop in services. You know, we weren't an organization that could just stop when there was the stay at home. We had to keep going. We were 24 hours um, and really making sure that that continued. But One of the things that the pandemic has done is shown us that everything we were wanting to do and trying to do was needed more than ever, that we were definitely in the right direction. As I mentioned, the mobile advocacy piece was so important. Mm -hmm. The need for increased shelter was so important. Um, And to have that non-communal piece um, is really important. So we definitely learned from that and knew that we wanted to continue to move forward in that direction. And that's where we are right now. But one of the things that we knew we couldn't continue to do was the way we were doing shelter. Mm -hmm. So even though we have not reached a point where we've even secured the final location for where we want to build our new shelter, Mm -hmm. we are currently leasing a six-unit apartment building to set up the model that we want um, and need to better serve the community. Wow. 
Wow. Um, I've got a question you, uh, throughout, uh, of course, as a good leader and, and nonprofit leader, you keep saying we. And I want to hear a little bit about the we. Uh, I want to hear a little bit about your team, um, but also knowing that they do, this is, this is heavy work. This is serious stuff. I'm sure that they have, uh, you know, good camaraderie and all of that. But how do you, uh, I want to hear about your team, but also know how you and they um, balance that work uh, that is so heavy with... Without having, giving into compassion fatigue or just... Thank you, yeah, just, yeah. Um, because there's, it's a lot, right? And so you can build a great team, but that great team can really be taken down sometimes by things that are sometimes out of their control. Um, and yeah, let's hear about that team for a bit. Yeah, so I will say one of the things that I learned through the merger process mm -hmm. is I am definitely the big picture person, mm. but I need the we. I need the we to help make that materialize and happen. Mm -hmm. um, you can dream it all you want. Yeah. You can see it. Right. <laughs> but right. unless you have the right people to help you ensure that that happened. My phrase was always, let's keep our eye on the prize. Let's yeah. keep our eye on the prize. Um, <laughs> but as you were saying, with the pandemic, it was, it was hard. I mean, it's incredible to see how the team, the staff rallied mm. at a time where we were, we were not only navigating what to do about services and being there for other people, but navigating at home. Navigating our own lives, mm -hmm. you know, there was staff that um, had children in schools and were trying to navigate that piece of things. There were others that um, still had to be going out and doing the in-person things at a time where you weren't sure about the safety risks of right, COVID right. and and the implications of that. Um, so it's been, it's been a big challenge. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I think helps so much in the nonprofit field is that people that work there, work at Haven and work at other nonprofits are so compassionate and dedicated to the mission that there's a purpose, that, that there's a purpose and a bigger thing that brings us all together. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think the other part is just the how do we help each other? How do we, you know, fill in? At a, on a day where somebody can't. And, you know, mm -hmm. how do we try to make some of those adjustments or supportive actions where um, we can't all be on all at, the, at the same time? Um, you know, one of the things I think about that, that is really interesting to me is I keep saying to people, I honestly think that the merger happened so that we could get through COVID because <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know, I don't know how either little organization would have done it. Right. You know, when I was the director wearing multiple hats and I didn't have a finance person, I didn't have, you know, a fundraising person. Mm -hmm. I was kind of a program person as well as, you know, so I don't know how we would have navigated the PPP loans, you know, all oh, the God. different things that oh, were, yeah. that were needed in order to, also focus on programs and services. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's a big piece of it. But I mean, I also, Haven has a great team, but we also aren't immune to the challenges of maintaining a solid workforce. Mm -hmm. um, some of that is, you know, the other work that we're trying to do is focus on how do we make it better for the folks that work at Haven? How do we make better wages? You know, if you have 
folks that are doing this incredibly hard work that can also make the same amount of money doing not not less important work, but less stressful work mm-hmm. um, right. um, or finding opportunities where it's not around the clock or it's, you know, set hours. How do you make it so that although there's the rewards of working towards our mission, right. there's also the need for people to live and <laughs> to have the resources that they need. Um, so how do we balance that with getting more folks because we know the need is so great and we're strapped and we need to get more people involved to taking care of the folks we already have. Um, I just feel fortunate that although we had transition like everybody else did in our workforce, we also were able to continue to recruit new people to join us. So we didn't have a long period of time where we were missing staff, Mm -hmm. um, which isn't the same for a lot of the the other organizations. Um. Yeah. We've talked a lot about the merger and, and while, you know, focusing on the incredible mission services that you provide um, has been a fascinating discussion uh, for a lot of our listeners too. I mean, when you hear about merger, those are not easy. And I think, you know, we, we need to delve into how you were able to do that successfully and the challenges you had to overcome. Cause you taking two organizations that, while maybe similar in, in, in mission, change is hard. And when you're trying to bring two organizations together, there's a lot of emotions that can come together. There's a lot of logistical issues. Um, you know, a lot of people are saying you know, sometimes like, oh, we have so many nonprofits that do the same thing. Why don't they merge? Well, there's a reason because it's hard <laughs> um, and it's hard to pull off successfully. So can you talk about what was that? How long was that journey to get there? And what were some of the, the challenges you overcame to do that? Well, I was laughing when <clears throat> in the uh, introduction, it talked about my graduate thesis being on strategic <laughs> That's alliances. That's what I was going to mention. Because yeah. that was specifically on the two organizations, SAS and a Safe Place. Oh, and that was. That was in 2006, uh, and we merged in 2015. Oh, my word. So if that gives you any sense. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and we were yeah. kind of into the conversations at the time that I was doing the thesis. Wow. So, so I mean, it, it's something, like I said earlier, it's something we wanted for a long time, but it's not easy. Um, we learned a lot of lessons, and I actually think it was great that I focused my thesis on that because I was able to do... A, some of the stuff is is common sense, mm-hmm. but by reading about why other mergers didn't work um, or what are those things that got in the way, it was it was an opportunity to say, okay, that's what happened in this situation. Yeah. You know, um, for a long time we would bring the boards together and we would have conversations, and there wasn't really that commitment to this is what we're trying to do. You know, mm, right. it's almost like there could have. There could, and there possibly were, people at the table only to make sure it didn't happen. Oh, <laughs> instead, no. Right, right. Because That's a people want to protect their turf, right? Yeah, right. right, exactly. Yeah. And so by the 10th anniversary, maybe that Lessons I need, Never Needed to Learn book might come out. But I think one of the things that was really important for me as we went through mm-hmm. the merger, as you were saying, that change is hard. And so one of the biggest cha- challenges in a merger is how do you how do you reassure and keep staff, keep the communication so that people who are concerned about what does this mean for me um, are still able to put that aside a little bit and focus on 
what we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it. So there was lots of conversations with the staff about, you know, we are not going to make any decision without asking the question, how will this help us further our mission? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that, I think, was an important piece to it finally happening. But the other important piece was by me becoming the director of both organizations for the year that we went through the merger was extremely helpful. Absolutely. Because if you yeah. had two different directors mm-hmm. bringing that information to, we had a merger task force that had board members from nice. each organization. Uh, we were working with a consultant, which I think was really important because that ensured that the process didn't get stopped. Mm-hmm. And that ensured that there was the commitment to merging and figuring out what was going to happen at the end of that year. Mm. Um, (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm laughing because there were some comments about, you know, from some board members that were concerned about the process, whether or not I would continue to be the director of either organization or the merged organization (laughs) when it was over, but it all worked out fine. Yeah, apparently it did. (laughs) Apparently it did. Um, to that end, though, you've had quite the tenure of uh, in the nonprofit sector. Um, why do you do what you do? That's a great question. That's why I um, asked it. <laughs> I feel very fortunate having done this for 34 years now. Started when I was 10. Yep, yep, um, clearly. <laughs> that I was very fortunate to find a career that I really loved at an early age. Mm. Um I think what's kept me so motivated is I clearly feel very strongly about the mission of what we're trying to do. But also, I've had the opportunity to have my job change so much. Mm -hmm. And so if I was doing the direct work that I did in the beginning for multiple years, very rewarding, working with the volunteer program, all of those things, very rewarding I don't know if I could have continued to do that for 34 years. Mm -hmm. And so then the opportunity, I did leave the organization at one point and worked for the Coalition Against Domestic and Sexual Violence as a trainer. Mm -hmm. So I had an opportunity to do some statewide work before coming back as the director. Then when the merger happened, you know, there's, there's been that incredible, okay, we did it, we merged, now how do we grow what we've done? How do we do what we wanted to do? Um, And we've had tremendous success in our growth. Um, And now there's the, okay, we know what needs to happen next. And so what's keeping me motivated now is knowing that can't stop here, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Just like we couldn't stop with just the merger. There was a reason why we merged. And now our next step is we Mm -hmm. really need to build that co-located, dignified shelter for folks that's co-located with office space that provides the opportunity for comprehensive programming. We have to gain more resources and capacity to build those school-based programs. Mm -hmm. Um, We've actually started a new program that... Um, we're really excited about, which is Camp Hope. I was going to ask you about that. I'm uh, glad you brought it up. Thank I, you. I'm Go sorry. right ahead. Yeah, so we're really excited about this. Um, this is with the, um, it's a national program, but it'll be the first in New Hampshire, where it's a year-long pathways mentorship program for kids who've experienced trauma, ages 7 to 17. And then it culminates in a week of overnight camp. And The whole premise of it is building hope and resiliency for kids who've experienced trauma. So around the country, though, Camp Hope has been proven to be so effective in addressing the healing Mm. for 
kids who have experienced trauma because wow. a lot of some of what happens is it takes everyday people who have experienced that are known to the kids or in some cases they're not known but they learn about them that have overcome the trauma that's happened to them so kids get to not only see and be around other kids that have experienced similar situations but they see that hope in knowing that you can overcome what's happened to you that doesn't need to define who you are and you can go on to be these successful people um, and go on to have a happy life and have that kind of hope for the future. And so as people are listening to these amazing projects that you're undertaking and they go, I, I-, I want to help, how can they get involved? How- <laughs> mm-hmm. What is the kind of support they can provide you? Yeah, so we are fortunate to have a tremendous volunteer program. And we utilize volunteers in all aspects of the organization, whether that's you know, front lines, we have volunteers that help us taking calls on our hotline, going out to hospitals. We also have volunteers doing outreach activities. You know, now that things have opened up, we're back at all tabling events, you know, festivals, fairs, letting people know about the work that we do. Excellent. There's event opportunities to work on some of our events. There's leadership positions on our board of directors or fundraising development committee. Um, Basically, if you're interested in volunteering and you're in our geographic region and want to help Haven, we can find a place for you. And of course, cash is always helpful, (laughs) especially when you're trying to build the type of uh, facility that you are. Um, How much is this capital campaign trying to raise and how can people donate? Well, I will say... It's gone up about $4 million since what we thought it was going to be before, <laughs> Sounds about before right. things happened. Uh. Um, so we, in just aside from our capital campaign and the work that we're trying to do, we've raised almost $750,000 a year towards our just regular operating costs. Wow. So that's a piece that we are continuing to grow because Aside from the money we want to raise from the capital campaign, we want to make sure we can sustain what we build um, and make sure that that's in place. And by doing that, we're, we're going to need to raise more than that every year. So there's the need just in terms of the services and the programs, and then there's the capital need. Um, but part of what we're trying to do is... Basically, it's about a 12 to $14 million capital campaign that is both for the facility we're trying to build as well as the impact and the infrastructure of adding staff and um, focusing on the staff piece. And then the third piece is really the sustainability piece and how do we make sure that we can sustain what we're trying to build. Um, we were fortunate. We were just awarded um, two million dollars in congressionally directed spending through Senator Shaheen's office. That's right. You were uh, featured on uh, MUR recently. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Excellent. So she came to visit our office the other day, which was great. That's wonderful. Congratulations on that as well. So um, a lot of things uh, moving in the right direction for Haven, for you, for your team. Um, thank you. First of all, to your, you and your entire team for all of the important work that you do. Um, before we before we wrap, um, if someone is experiencing sexual or domestic violence, what can they do? How can they get help? So help is available around the clock, no matter where you are in New Hampshire. So 
In for Haven, you could go to havennh.org. It has our hotline number. It has the chat feature on there, um, and that's the way that somebody could reach out for help. Um, someone could also go to the coalition's website and um, find out if they wanted their specific crisis center in their region, where who that is and who that might be, and mm-hmm. access to that support. Excellent. Thank you for that. Kathy Beebe is executive director of Haven, our 2023 Business New Hampshire Magazine Nonprofit of the Year. We're so thankful, uh, again, for you, for the work that you do, uh, for the dedication of your team and everyone. Um, and uh, and again, thank you. That's all I can say. It's been great to have you and learn about the organization and, and you. Thank you for having me here and also for the recognition of the award. I think it's really so important that some nonprofits get recognized for the tremendous work that's happening, and Haven is doing some incredible work. You sure are. Thanks again. Thanks. And we also want to thank our partner, the New Hampshire Charitable Foundation, who has generally provided a $5,000 grant um, annually to our winners of the Nonprofit of the Year. We are so happy that that's going to go to help support Haven's mission as well. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the stories and information you heard on today's podcast, find more by subscribing to Business NH Magazine or visiting businessnhmagazine.com. I'm Matt Mowry. And I'm Nathan Carroll. BizCast NH is a production of Granite Media Group.